Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about the rising and evolving influence of people of color in Washington, D.C., and what it means for everyone else. I'm Franco Ordonez. I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together make up McClatchy. And I'm Bill Douglas, and I cover Congress for McClatchy. We're calling this season one of the show, a casual conversation in six episodes featuring voices from Washington, D.C., from outside Washington, movers and shakers who impact today's politics. Democrats, Republicans, consultants, activists, we're going to talk to people of all shapes and sizes and obviously colors. But all of them share one thing in common. At one point, they were political outsiders, often ostracized, sometimes criticized, and made to feel like they didn't belong. They've been the ones affecting the change and charting this country's future with priorities that reflect not only their family histories, but the changing face of the American electorate. Today, we have Representative Pramila Jayapal from Washington State. She's the first Indian American woman elected to Congress. It was great to have her stop by our new studio before she left for recess. She was really generous with telling us personal stories about coming to the U.S. at 16 and the conversations she's had with her family about being different in America. Yeah, I was sort of struck by her personal stories of being discriminated against. She wasn't shy in discussing where and, and what and how. Yeah, and she didn't mince any words about President Donald Trump or his staff. She sounds like someone who's going to be a force to be reckoned with in that chamber. She's going to be out front. She already is. Let's get to it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Pleasure. <laughs> now, when you go home, nonstop, right? Nonstop. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> No red eyes and no stops. Are your parents out there also? My parents still live in India. My mom, Maya Jayapal, and my dad, whose name is so long that he shortened it to MP Jayapal because it's just too long otherwise. They sent me to the United States when I was 16 years old by myself. They had about $5,000 in their bank account at the time, and they used all of it to send me here because they felt like this was the place that I was going to get the best education. And my dad, unfortunately, doesn't travel anymore, but my mom came for my swearing in, and she was so proud and cried in the balcony, and I never realized how much they sacrificed until my son was about 15, and I started thinking about what that meant to send your kid across the ocean and He's at Wesleyan College um, in Connecticut, and I have a stepson who's 38 years old, and he lives in Colorado. You also grew up in Indonesia. You spent yeah. time in Singapore. Singapore yeah. How does that impact your perspective? You know, I think of the world as a really small place, in part because I've grown up all around the world. And then after college, I worked in the private sector on Wall Street for a little while. But then I went to work in nonprofit and international health and development, and you know, I worked along the borders of Laos and Cambodia on the Thai side. I went on a fellowship to live in villages in India for two years. And I believe that diplomacy and development are absolutely critical roles for the United States to play. So all of that is coming into focus again here in Congress. What was the impetus to make the shift from Wall Street to public service? The reason I went on Wall Street was my dad, when he sent me here, said that there were three professions that were acceptable uh, for me to go into. One was that I could be a doctor, I could be a lawyer, or I could be a business person or an engineer. And we got one phone call home each year because we didn't have any money. So I was supposed to be an economics major, and my sophomore year of college, I used my one phone call to call my dad from the dorm phone and tell him that I was going to be an English literature major. 
And then I had to hold the phone away from my ear, you know, (laughs) several feet as he screamed at me and said, I didn't send you to the United States to learn how to speak English. You already know how to speak English. So the deal I made with him was that I would get the same job with an English degree that I would have gotten with an economics degree. I'm very good with numbers. People sometimes underestimate my ability on that front. And I went to work on Wall Street for Payne Weber. And so when I left... I was really looking for something that was going to give me the satisfaction that I wanted every day that I could wake up and say I was going to make a difference in the world and and then ended up after 9-11 starting my own organization now called One America, the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington state, one of the largest in the country. And that's what I did for 15 years before coming to Congress. 9-11 seems to be a defining moment for you. It was a defining moment. I had just come back to the United States after living in villages in India for two years. And I had also just become a U.S. citizen after a fairly harrowing experience where my son was born one pound, 14 ounces and 26 and a half weeks in a village in India. And I almost lost my status in this country. 9-11 happened and this rash of hate crimes broke out, similar to actually what we're seeing today, where Muslims and Sikh Americans and Arab Americans were getting attacked simply for their religion and how they looked. Within two weeks, the Patriot Act had passed and I saw the FBI had come in and shut down some Somali grocery stores and there was no due process. They were being accused of terrorist activity. And as somebody who had just been so proudly, you know, given my citizenship, it seemed to me to be a complete abuse of everything I knew to be part of American democracy. 9-11 was really that moment where I realized people like me were being told that we didn't have a place in this country somehow or that we needed to be treated differently. Did you ever personally experience any discrimination? I have, yes. Throughout my life, I've been denied a room because of the color of my skin uh, in eastern Washington. I have been told to go back to my own country multiple times, and I came to the United States when I was 16 years old, and I'm 51 now. So 35 years in this country, there is no other home for me other than this. And um, after 9-11, I also got a lot of death threats. I got a lynching threat. It was really tough times with people, you know, expressing hate in ways that are, to me, completely un-American and undermine the core of who we are as a country. Immigration, in my mind, has never been about immigration. It's always been about who we are as a country and what we stand up for. And 9-11, I actually was, I was actually in New York City that time, that day. I was actually downtown and I saw, you know, there was such a community that rose together of Americans because of what happened Do you feel like those people just didn't recognize what was happening to all the other Americans of different colors? I mean, what happened? Because there was one thing that was happening, and then obviously there was another thing that was going on. I think 9-11, as many times of crisis do, brought out the worst and the best of Americans across the country. And I saw much of the same thing happening just recently after the Muslim ban, and we were at the airport, you know, eight hours after the ban went into effect. And... It was remarkable to see in communities across the country and, you know, thousands of people who showed up to the airport saying, you know, we welcome refugees. We want immigrants. We love immigrants. America is a country that's welcoming. I mean, those instincts are brought out sometimes by the worst things that people see. And to me, that's been the beauty of 
what happened after 9-11, but also the beauty of what's happening today is people are standing up and reminding ourselves what we really do stand for and rejecting hate and bullying and discrimination and targeting of people simply because of what they look like or where they're from. You continue to say that you feel very similar things or experience. Why is that? I mean, what what is the equivalence of what happened on 9-11? The, you know, obviously the planes. I think the sort of the waves of xenophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment, Islamophobia, that swept the country after 9-11 is similar, but there are big differences. I will say that President Bush, immediately after 9-11, when some of those hate crimes started happening, did come out and speak out very vociferously against that kind of hate. He had policies that I completely disagreed with, and I thought that he was targeting immigrants through those policies. Today, we're in a very different situation where we had a campaigner for president and now a president who has made it part of his agenda to actually vilify immigrants. That comes after Steve King, one of my colleagues, tweeted that we can't build our civilization with somebody else's babies. And I tweeted back at him and said, what exactly do you mean by that? I am somebody else's baby. It's almost like it's legitimized hate being unleashed across the country with really no measures to tamp that down. Have you spoken to him personally since he made those comments? And Congress is a place for lawmakers, you know, they talk about comedy and where everybody's supposed to get along. I mean, how do you work with somebody who makes comments like that that you disagree with? I work with people I disagree with all the time. That's never been a problem. But I really draw the line at somebody who makes comments that are incredibly disrespectful to many people across this country. Steve King serves on judiciary with me. I look forward to talking to him about his comments. And you've probably seen that there are calls for him to step down from the Judiciary Committee. This is a committee that is supposed to assure civil rights for everybody. And so I think comedy is an important characteristic, but I refuse to accept that somebody should be able to make those statements and get away with it. You know, you mentioned your son. After 9-11, you were concerned about letting him out of the house. I'm not sure how old he was at the time, but, you know, if he was at that age now or what would you tell him now or what do you tell him? Yeah, he was four. Um, I was afraid of letting him out of the house. And we talked over the years about, you know, how important our rights are, how important it is to stand up for what you believe in, even if you're scared. And I did have to talk to him about, um, you know, I never had my name listed at the time. I got death threats. I think I mentioned that. I think if he were a young kid now, I would want to be reminding him about respect and tolerance and that it's a shame that he can't look to certain people that he should be able to look to as role models, but to remember that every single person deserves that respect and that justice and that opportunity because there's so much in rhetoric right now that has young kids literally saying to me, they come to me and they say this to me, do I have a place in this country? Is my mom safe? Can you imagine that this generation is growing up thinking that the things that were said during the campaign about women, about immigrants, are now coming from the president, that that's somehow okay? You also mentioned your stepson. Has that relationship influenced your work in any way? Yeah. So my stepson is actually uh, was adopted as a foster child and his dad was Latino. He does not identify with his dad at all, his birth father at all, because 
it was a very rough eight years when he was in foster care. And, you know, I think he has grown up with a lot of challenges. So there are definitely always issues when you integrate, you know, different families. But he's an amazing kid, really resilient. Every day is hard for Michael, and he he makes it through. And so I'm really proud of him. But, you know, he's rejected some of his Latino background in part because of his birth father. So that's been interesting given my work. And it's not necessarily what he identifies with, but but he's really proud of me too. So You mentioned the White House. <laughs> We'd like to get your thoughts on what you make of this White House. Well, that's a big question. Um, Look, I think that I disagreed with many of the policies of previous administrations, both Democratic and Republican, by the way, and I'm a, I'm a very progressive Democrat. But I have never seen this level of undermining of the institutions that make up the American democracy. This president has railed against judges who have schooled him in the Constitution, and instead of throwing a temper tantrum, he should listen and learn about the Constitution that he swore to protect and uphold, to somehow say that he's the president of a country that believes in the institutions of a free press, of judiciary, and of a Congress, and checks and balances, it's ludicrous. The guy seems to not believe in any of that. At the same time, you look at the Women's March, you look at the people who are engaged in a different kind of a way, and maybe this is our moment to reclaim our democracy and to get people to understand that if they don't vote and if they're not out there making their voices heard, we can end up in some pretty bad straits. I mean, you mentioned some of the, the language that the president has used. I mean, a lot of people say, yes, he talks tough, but how much do you think of it is perhaps bluster and how much do you think will be action? Well, he's acting on all of his bluster. I mean, <laughs> the wall, which supposedly we're going to get Mexico to pay for, is in the budget. The $54 billion increase in defense that is coming straight out of non-defense discretionary spending. That's cancer research. That's our public schools that's NASA and our space program. That's the Environmental Protection Agency. So yes, some of it is bluster, but I don't think that we can say that this is a president who doesn't follow through on what he said he would do. He is putting people into positions like Steve Bannon. He is moving forward an agenda that is about undermining the institutions that actually hold any president responsible for their actions. You've used some pretty strong words about Steve Bannon in the past, about being a white supremacist. Did you mean those? Yeah, I did mean that. Look, he oversaw a site, Breitbart News, that published the views of known white supremacists. If he's not a white supremacist, he also should not publish those views. I think that he has a lot of answering to do, but he's certainly running the country. I, I called him President Bannon the other day. He's got a lot of influence on this president, and he is moving forward his agenda. One of our papers is Kansas City, where two Indian engineers were shot. One of the men was killed. What type of response did you get, and what did you think of the response from this administration? Well, the response I got was incredible fear, which has been the response since the election and since his inauguration. I think the South Asian community may not have seen themselves immediately as targets, but again, drawing the connection to post 9-11, you know, a lot of Sikh Americans were targeted post 9-11 because people saw the turbans and thought that they were Muslim. And I mean, the consistency here, both in that story of the man who was shot and killed in Kansas and the gentleman, Sikh American gentleman in Kent, just south of Seattle, who was shot 
both instances, they were told to go back to their own country. And so this is the hate that has been coming forward. The president started his State of the Union with a condemnation of hate, but he has been incredibly slow to speak out on any of these situations. And he has not put resources into making sure that the FBI prosecutes these as hate crimes. This president hasn't done any of that. You talk about being the (laughs) anti-Trump. Somebody else classified me as that. But yes, I'm quite proud of that label. What does an anti-Trump do in the halls of Congress How do you manifest being an (laughs) anti-Trump? Well, I think the reason somebody gave me that label was because I'm sort of everything that candidate Trump railed against and President Trump is continuing to put policies in place against. I'm a woman. I'm a person of color. I'm an immigrant. And I've been an activist for a long time. So what does an anti-Trump do? I, I believe that I am working on behalf of the American people and I have always believed that change happens more quickly, frankly, on the outside than it does on the inside. But the two have to work together. And so um, it's been an honor to be a part of really seeing people believe that they can make a difference and taking matters into their own hands, whether it's the women that are out on the streets or whether it's the immigrants and the Muslims who are, you know, rising up and saying, you know, we belong here, we have a place here, and we're going to do everything we can to protect America and to protect our democracy. Your healthcare background that, you know, you actually worked in healthcare a little bit. How has that impacted your perspective with the whole debate? It's been great, actually, to come into Congress at a time when the top two subjects are immigration and healthcare. I feel like it's been an easy transition for me in that way. But both working on global health, but then I was also on the state Senate Healthcare Committee. So I have a lot of knowledge about both areas. And there are too many families across the United States who are literally one healthcare crisis away from bankruptcy. And that's unacceptable. I really believe that we should have a Medicare for all system where we really ensure that people can get the care they need without breaking the bank. We had the uh, election for chair of DNC. You talked about divisions within the Republican Party. There are divisions within the Democratic Party as well. One of our colleagues wrote a a really good story recently that a, a group of moderate conservative Democrats secretly met in Denver, Colorado, talking about how they're not listened to. What's the future of the Democratic Party? Well, I'm proud to have just been named to the DNC transition team. So I really do believe that we need to revamp the way the Democratic Party operates, that we need to invest back in people, that we need to show a difference between Democrats and Republicans. It's not a question of economics versus identity politics, which is how some people frame the election. It's really a question of opportunity for people and who's going to stand up against these huge corporations and make sure that people have a roof over their head and food on the table and the ability to send their kid to college without $40,000 in debt, which is the average amount, and to know that they can retire with security. That's what every American wants. And that's what we as a Democratic Party have to show that we are willing to fight for. Bluntly, why does it matter that you are Indian American in Congress? Why does it matter that you're Indian American? So I'm proud to be the first Indian American woman in the U.S. House of Representatives. And I think it matters because it's not that the picture just looks better. It is that we bring a different set of experiences. So I chair hearings differently. I listen to testimony differently. I craft legislation differently. And I'm engaged in a different set of issues in part because of what I know through my background and my experience. And I believe you get better policy made when you have that diversity of perspectives. What's the way forward under Trump? He has to understand that he, there's a constitution that he swore to protect. 
if he's not going to do that, then we're going to continue to have to fight against every one of his moves and his proposals, and we'll do it through the courts. The way forward is that he realizes that he's the president of a whole country and that he starts to actually represent that country. Otherwise, he'll get voted out or, or, or maybe taken out. That sounds like impeachment. I mean, do you think there's an appetite for that? There is in the public. I don't think we're quite at that point yet. I think that, you know, impeachment articles get voted on by the House of Representatives. But I've been disappointed to not see more of my colleagues on the other side stand up for some very basic ideals. Shock us. How might Trump surprise us? Well, I think he's already surprised us. He's the president of the United States. I think that was the ultimate shocker um, for some of us. But uh, look, he appealed to a segment of the population by promising some things that I think we actually all believe in. Jobs, better health care. He could shock us by actually doing some of those things he talked about. Right now, he's breaking promises to all the people that voted for him. And whether or not they see that immediately or whether they see that down the road, I don't know. I hope that more people don't lose their jobs across this country because he is negotiating some of the biggest deals for corporations. I hope that our planet doesn't get destroyed because he's rolled back every single environmental protection. So if he wanted to shock us, it'd be pretty easy right now by actually following through on some of the things that he said he would do. Congresswoman, thank you very much. You're welcome back here anytime. Well, thank you. That was a lot more personal than I was expecting. Thank you so much, Congressman, for joining us. Thank you. I found it really interesting how she believes that, you know, she's the right person in the right place at the right time. Not necessarily a storm that she wants to get into, but it speaks to her skill set. That phone call to her dad and him wanting her to be a lawyer or a doctor, I could kind of relate to that. My dad is still mad that I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, that's uh-huh. a universal story among minorities, I think. I, it's something, <laughs> you know, my, my dad was, um, you know, I was supposed to be a lawyer or a doctor. And, you know, when I said I wanted to be a journalist, his first words were, son, there are no DJs in our family. <laughs> so, it, uh, that is the universal, I think, minority story. Thanks again to Representative Jayapal for being here. Find more of Majority Minority on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and for you Amazon Alexa users, tune in. Thanks to executive producer Davin Coburn, and you can read lots more about Representative Jayapal at McClatchyDC.com. And we'll be back soon with more Majority Minority.